Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Convocation this morning. Uh, this morning, I am pleased to introduce to you John Roth, who will be speaking about, well, his talk will be titled, Do Denominations Matter? John graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in early modern European history. He is currently teaching here half-time, teaching courses, and also working half-time as editor of the Mennonite Quarterly Review and in the Mennonite Historical Library. In terms of the specific topic of his talk today, he's been in conversation with several different denominations, including the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the Lutheran World Federation, as well as the Swiss Reformed Church, Catholic Church, and the Emerging Church. Uh, after the, his talk, there will also be a question and answer session, so any of you can feel free to stay if you'd like to talk more. Please welcome John Roth. Good morning, and uh, thank you very much for uh, attending this convocation. For some of you here this morning, um, maybe many of you, the question of denominations is likely to trigger a big uh, yawn. A Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian brethren, who cares? Why does it matter? You like wheat bread, I like white bread. You root for the Yankees, I'm a Cubs fan. You grew up Presbyterian, I'm Catholic. Big deal. Until one day you discover uh, that it does matter. Maybe you're dating a person raised in a different religious tradition, and as the relationship gets serious, you find yourself suddenly needing to explain what you believe and why. Maybe you've had the painful experience of encountering uh, Mennonite friends or professors who seem to think that they are the only true Christians, as if Mennonites are somehow the point of reference for Christian identity. I still remember the shock that I felt two years ago when I discovered on the internet that the United Pentecostal Church International had committed its home mission program to focus on the salvation of a particular lost people group and that the lost people group they were targeting in 2006 were the Mennonites and the Amish, with, seriously, with workshops on how to lead Mennonites to Christ. You might be inclined to think that denominations don't matter, and then a candidate for the presidency comes along who's a Mormon, or closer to home, an applicant for a science position at Goshen College turns out to be a Christian scientist who believes that sickness is a problem of the mind rather than the body. We discover that the governing board of Goshen College requires 80% of our faculty to be members of the Mennonite Church, and suddenly you realize that, well, perhaps denominational identities do matter. Even if you don't discuss the topic very often, or even if your own denominational identity is quite tenuous, questions related to denominational identity are often lurking just beneath the surface of our campus life together. And one reason that it's so t difficult to talk about being Methodist or Lutheran or Mennonite or Catholic is precisely because these are never just conversations about abstract beliefs. They almost always point to deeper realities of inclusion and exclusion. They reveal our assumptions 
about proper worship, about proper ethics, and ultimately they touch on our understandings about truth with a capital T. This morning I'd like to challenge all of us to think more carefully about denominational identity. I'm interested in this question in part because I happen to be a Mennonite who's been steeped in the history and culture and theology of that tradition for most of my adult life. I preach regularly in Mennonite congregations. I edit the Mennonite Quarterly Review. I direct a research center called the Mennonite Historical Library. I publish books and articles on Mennonite history and theology. And yet I also know that there are at least 37 other Christian denominations and five other religions represented among my students, students who I respect very much and care deeply about. If you'd go through the yellow pages of a local phone book, you would find no less than 69 different denominational options within easy driving distance of the campus. Today there are 15,000 denominations registered with the IRS and as many as 34,000 discrete groups of Christians scattered around the world. Although Mennonites make up 60% of the students on our campus, they are less than one-tenth of one percent of the number of Christians around the world. A good perspective, I think, for all of us to keep in mind. And yet all of these groups claim in some way to represent the body of Christ. All of these groups look at the emergence of the early church in the book of Acts and say, yep, that's us at our birth. We represent the outcome that Jesus was intending for the church all along. And we scratch our heads and wonder, well, who's right and who's just fooling themselves? I'd also like to encourage more reflection on this topic for even more personal reasons. During the past five or six years, nothing has shaped my spiritual or intellectual worldview more profoundly than a series of intense conversations that I've had with Lutheran, Catholic, Reformed, and Pentecostal Christians, and now more recently with leaders in the so-called emergent church. I'm still a Mennonite, perhaps more than ever, and yet I don't think it's exaggerating to say that these encounters have transformed me. My life has been enriched and my faith renewed by these new friendships, and I'd like for that to happen on our campus as well. As a way of opening up the dialogue this morning, I want to make two different arguments, something like a lawyer perhaps arguing both sides of the same case. I want to begin by arguing briefly that denominations don't matter and that they shouldn't matter. And then I want to persuade you uh, that denominations do matter and that it's impossible for a Christian not to have a denominational identity. And perhaps most important, I want to close with a brief testimony about what I have learned in my ecumenical encounters that might suggest a context for a more honest and gracious conversation with each other about our religious identity. One of the strongest arguments against the relevance of denominations comes from the observations of religious uh, sociologists. 
Now, it should be clear that statistical uh, evidence regarding things like church membership and religious practices has not always been easy to uh, establish. It turns out that people lie about some of these things and that groups define membership in very different ways. So keep that in, in mind. And yet it's uh, undeniable that religious attitudes and practices in the United States are undergoing some profound changes. And I'd like to summarize those very briefly. Uh, first, the percentage of adults who claim no religious preference is steadily rising in the United States from about 7% in 1991 to 16% today. And the percentage of young adults, people like you, who have no religious preference is nearly twice that. So fewer people are ready to identify themselves explicitly as Christians. In addition, loyalty to particular denominations is clearly eroding. Of the six mainline Protestant denominations, uh, all of whom have been losing members for the past 40 years, worship attendance declined in real numbers by 12% between 1994 and 2005, and that number is even larger if you consider it as a percentage of the total population, so market share of, of the total population, a steady decline. At the same time, the average age of members in most denominations is steadily increasing. Among Mennonites, for example, the average age has jumped from 49 to 54 in the past 15 years, while the number of young people in the Mennonite church under the age of 45 has declined from 54% to 30%. Over the past decade, virtually all denominations have faced significant budget reductions with declining dollars available for missions, for education, administration. And perhaps most significantly, the tendency to move freely from one denomination to another has become much more common. In 1955, only one in 25 persons changed denominations in their lifetime. In 1985, the figure was one in three. Today, it's closer to one in two. Nearly 20% of all 65-year-olds have changed their denomination at least three times. According to a recent survey, one-third of Mennonite Church USA members agree that church denominations do not matter. Your generation talks more about spiritual life than any other, and yet allegiance to traditional denominations is almost not on your radar. What is emerging is less a culture of disbelief than the rise of what can be called generic Christianity, that is, Christianity that's disconnected from a particular denominational tradition. Let me give three quick examples or expressions of this. Lots of people your age, you've probably heard this before, lots of people your age are inclined to say something like, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious, or I believe in God but not in the church, or I can worship in nature just as authentically, maybe even more authentically than if I were in a pew on Sunday morning. And anyway, what's to say that your opinion about a particular interpretation of scripture is any better than mine or a dozen other interpretations? Why should it matter if one is a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic? 
A second form of generic Christianity can be seen in the rise of the so-called megachurches, almost all of which are explicitly non-denomination, or at least take pains in their church name and in their publicity to downplay denominational affiliation. Megachurches, of course, are very large. Their, Their numbers are growing. In fact, this is, struck me as kind of an interesting statistic. More than half of all church-going members attend only 12% of the churches in the United States, um, which is a phenomenon of the megachurch. Megachurches tend to have attenders rather than members. They usually have a carefully planned worship hour, contemporary upbeat music, well-polished sermons, smorgasbord of specialized programs, and perhaps most importantly, they connect you into a broader community that is inclusive and often non-judgmental and welcoming. But gone are the traditional hymns, uh, mention of denominational headquarters or reference to specific theological doctrines or contentious, controversial, ethical issues. We're not in the business of building denominations, one well-known leader said recently. We want to build the kingdom of God. Still others have been frustrated with traditional denominations because they haven't taken a clear enough stance on a particular hot-button issue in uh, our society today, like abortion or homosexuality or opposition to war. And so for these people, if if you move to a new town, for example, and if you really care about one of these issues, you are much less likely to automatically look for the local Presbyterian or Methodist or Mennonite church, and instead you will go looking for something like a community clear where we stand on homosexuality church, or a a Main Street moderately liberal affirms women in leadership church, or a Living Streams really great contemporary music church. But in all of these instances, The general trend is clear. Denominational distinctions matter less and less to the average Christian, and many would describe this as a good thing, long overdue, good riddance to bad rubbish. You might even have good theological arguments for this trend. After all, isn't a divided church a scandal for the Christian witness to the world? Didn't Jesus pray that the church would be one? Didn't Paul plead with the church at Corinth to live in unity since the body of Christ is not divided? That, it seems to me, is one side of the argument. And I'd be interested to hear how it plays itself out In your mind, does it seem convincing to you? Do you find yourself in this description? But there's another side to the argument that I'd also like to sketch, namely that denominations uh, do matter and that the decline of denominational identity should be resisted. Let me make this case quickly and then offer some Conclusion, concluding reflections that are emerging in my mind. My first point, <clears throat> excuse me, in defense of denominations <clears throat> is a simple practical observation. Namely, churches that have no denominational connections often, not always, but often, place themselves under the charismatic authority of an individual who is accountable to no one. 
These congregations may flourish for a time, but they quickly fade when the leader passes from the scene or they go down in a fiery crash when the leader begins to use the church for his own gain. Denominations provide a necessary ballast, a stability, accountability to individual congregations, and they serve other important functions like holding property and managing funds. They provide resources for religious education. They represent your congregation to the broader Christian church. They help your congregation organize for mission and for relief work. So there are functional reasons to retain denominations, but that's not my main argument. Even more important than these practical considerations is the fact that denominations of one sort or another are impossible to avoid, which is to say that there is no such thing as a non-denominational church. There is no such thing as generic Christianity. Our beliefs about faith and the world are always expressed within the matrix of a particular culture and the limitations of a particular language and worldview. This might sound a bit abstract, but bear with me on this. Sometimes people, and perhaps especially college graduates, are tempted to dismiss denominations as small-minded prejudices that only foster division and religious intolerance. What the world needs is for people to get over their religious differences, for everyone to be tolerant and to just get along. Now, the motives behind this might be, be noble, and it sounds intellectually mature, but the problem is that the logic of this argument quickly bumps up against some real limitations. It doesn't take long to discover, for example, that even the most liberal-minded and tolerant person is ready to impose some boundaries on acceptable belief, say, slavery, and will consider some practices, say, child sacrifice, as unacceptable. Anyone who wants to suggest that all religions are basically the same, that there are really no criteria for making value judgments about these things, is going to be quickly caught up short by the Islamic jihadist or the ultra-conservative Christian fundamentalist who thanks you for your toleration and then proceeds to establish a theocratic state that punishes infidels like you which is to say your principled toleration, your insistence that all religion is basically equal, will indeed have some limits. Even if you are not religious, once you start discussing the limits of your toleration, you're going to be pulled into an argument based on claims about the nature of truth and reality which are essentially religious in nature. Modern secularists who claim to rise above the sectarianism of religious identity are simply blind to their own membership in the denomination of enlightenment liberalism that worships the God of freedom and the gospel of individual rights.
In the end, our understandings of faith are always expressed in the particularity of language and culture and form. Our beliefs are never free-floating or universal. If someone tells you that they are part of a non-denominational church, that they have no human-made doctrine, that they just preach the Bible and are simply Christians, run away. It's an illusion. The pastors of non-denominational churches interpret the Bible according to some theological tradition, Their Sunday schools use curriculum that comes from somewhere. They're going to have some definition of heresy. There will be some behavior that is unacceptable if you're going to be part of their fellowship. Anyone who claims to be non-denominational, this is stating it in its extreme form, but anyone who claims to be non-denominational is simply being willfully blind to the historical traditions and the biblical interpretation that is shaping their understanding of faithful belief and practice. Incidentally, it is precisely those churches who have the sharpest clarity about their beliefs and expectations, groups like uh, Mormons, Pentecostals, some Baptists, who are growing the fastest. And the independent churches who are attracting members around sharply focused issues are in the end not non-denominational. They're simply creating new denominational identities of their own and they're part of the reason why there are now 15,000 groups registered with the IRS. Denominations matter for me because they are unavoidable. Identities will always be expressed in a particular form with particular beliefs and practices and rituals and traditions. So the real question is not do denominations matter, but how do denominations matter? If denominations are unavoidable, how are we to live together on a campus that has 38 different claims to the truth or in a community with 69 or in a world with 34,000. Here's the rub. I've just argued that boundaries of some sort are inevitable. We can't express our faith apart from culturally particular structures. And yet it's precisely the particularity of our identity, especially when it deals with matters of truth, that can easily become exclusive and arrogant and oppressive and violent. And our impulse in the face of these real problems of arrogance, of exclusivity, of violence, our impulse is to say denominations don't matter or let's all just be Christians or Christianity is the problem so let's just be nice to each other which, as I've argued, is no solution at all since we will inevitably replace the particularity of one identity with another. So how do we get out of that conundrum? Let me conclude my reflections this morning not by offering an argument which would only compound the problem, but rather by offering a testimony as to how conversations with other Christians have transformed my view of the world. I don't know if you'll find this experience, my experience, helpful, but at the very least, I hope it will prompt you 
to reflect a bit on your own story. And as Kelly said, if any of you want to stick around afterwards to have a conversation, I'd be delighted to do that, or send me an email, or let's find another setting to hear each other's perspectives. In the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of St. John, we read that at the end of time, a great multitude of people, believers from every nation and tribe, people, language, and I would even add denominations, will gather together to sing their praises before the throne of God. Now, to tell the truth, uh, I have not been a big fan of the book of Revelation. Uh, it seems to open the door to all sorts of mischief in the church with a speculation on, on the end times. But about six years ago, a Lutheran friend called my attention to this eschatological vision of all of the various people on earth gathering to sing praises to God, and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind since. I happen to be a Mennonite, as you know, in this life, and I'm a Mennonite for reasons that matter to me. But in the course of my conversation with Christians from other traditions, it has become more and more clear to me that all of history is ultimately moving to a time when all of God's people from every corner of the earth, all 39 denominations represented here at Goshen College, all 69 groups in this community, all of the world's 34,000 subgroups, and maybe even the rest of the world's religions as well, are going to gather together in praise to God. That's where history is moving. And I want to be on the side of history. I want to find myself on a path that is joining up with all sorts of other people who are also moving in that direction with the intention of praising God. The eschatological vision of Revelation assumes particularity and variety. These are people from nations who have languages, their tribes, but it also points to a common yearning, a common purpose, that is to praise the one who is seated on the throne of God. Today, when I encounter other Christians, one of the first things I want to know is whether you're heading in that direction too, and I want to walk alongside you in that journey. The second thing I take from this vision is that I have a particular song of praise to sing. I need to know my song, and you need to know your song. What is the particular gift of praise that you are bringing? How does heaven meet earth in your tradition? What is the form and the shape that you give to the holy? What's the clay pot that you use to carry this treasure? How does your tradition reflect the light of God into the darkness of the world? I won't know unless I start asking questions, and I won't know unless you are willing and able to tell me about it. 
What do you know about your song, about the tradition that has given shape to your faith? Ecumenical conversations have transformed me, not because every time we meet, we simply say once more, okay, let's be nice, or our differences are insignificant, or we're just using different words for exactly the same thing. No, I've been transformed because my Lutheran and Calvinist and Catholic and Pentecostal friends have cared deeply enough about their own traditions to describe them in great detail. And the result is not some soggy porridge of banal agreements, but something approaching a full-throated choir, not always in harmony. In fact, I think sometimes some of my friends are singing a little off-key, and they think the same of me. But there is a clear sense that we have a song that is worth sharing with each other, not for its own sake, but in anticipation of gathering around the throne of God. I want to encourage all of you here today, regardless of your background, to not only find the particular voice of your tradition, but to offer that song as a gift to each other, as a gift, not as a threat, not as an imposition, but as something that is precious enough that you want to share it with others. If you're on that journey of bringing praise to God, Hold your head high and sing out with gusto. And if you hear others singing, then try to harmonize as best you can. And remember that there's a whole lot of people who don't have a song of any sort, who are yearning to sing. And if it's your song of praise that finds a place in their heart, then I will be the first to welcome them on the journey. For the time being, I'm going to continue to sing the song of my tradition, but I do so knowing that it's ultimately not about my song, but that gathering with you and a great multitude of others from every nation and people and tribe and language to give praise to the one who has created us and sustained us and redeemed us and calls us back to the full glory for which we were intended. Until that day, may each of us sing as best we know how, and may we hear somewhere in our imperfect chorus a distant echo of the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. Thank you for lending your voice to this effort here at Goshen College.